This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we are able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Today, our author is famed fashion designer Isaac Mizrahi. We spoke with him at the Jewish Community Center in St. Louis as he was on tour in November of 2019 with his book, I Am a Memoir by publisher McMillian. This world-famous fashion designer and TV personality started off his life in Brooklyn, New York in the 1960s as one of three children in an observant Syrian Jewish family. His father was in the clothing business and gave him a sewing machine when he was 10, and he eventually went to school at the famed LaGuardia School of Performing Arts and Parsons School of Design in Manhattan. His eventual voyage to fame in the very liberal and open worlds of high fashion and television performance was far from smooth, especially given the very conservative background he came from. One of the big things he did not get from his home life was optimism. I wasn't born optimistic, but I learned it from the circumstance of my life, from the circumstances of my life. I continue to. You know, I'm the one who like doesn't think it's going to work out and then something works and it's like, "Oh, great like this is something I'm, I learn about L- life teaches me optimism and we'll hear about the other eclectic things that life has taught this man of many talents designer TV show host business owner and author Isaac Mizrahi on this episode of talking with authors from HEC media and HEC books here's our host and interviewer this time Paul Shankman Isaac Mizrahi, welcome to St. Louis. So why write a memoir now? You're still a pretty young man. Um, I agree. I am a young man. Well, I'm glad you agree because we're the same <laughs> age. Oh, so are. for well, the purposes of this discussion, you're a young man. <laughs> well, I have to say, I took the job because I have no shame. And what I really wanted to gather from writing the full book is I wanted to prove that I could write a long-form book. I wanted to prove to myself that I am a writer, you know? Um, And unless you actually have written something long-form, you cannot consider yourself a writer. It's really a completely other, you know, I've written screenplays and I've written plays and I've written articles for magazines and I've written little stories here and there and even like an occasional poem. But Writing a book is a special kind of crazy, you know, torture slash reward. Did right? I hear it drove you to drink? A little bit, yeah. I started drinking a little more than I ever did, right? Which is very little, but, um, but, I I was supposed to. I was, tr- was trying to sell this idea of doing a picture book because I thought, oh, that'll be fun to just like go over all these pictures and kind of edit them and lay them out, and you know, it's going to be hell trying to vet them and clear them and and own them for the rights to the book. But it'll be a fun process and it'll just be this beautiful thing, right? And um, and I thought perhaps on the heels of this weirdly. I think also too soon retrospective of my work at the Jewish Museum a couple of years ago, I thought that it would be a good promotional platform for this book. And I was dining with a friend of mine who's a really smart book agent. And he was like, yeah, don't do that book. Nobody wants that book, right? And so 
at that point, he, he convinced me to write a memoir. And at first I was like, I'm too young, that's crazy, that's crazy. And then I thought, no, wait a minute. If you want to be a writer, this is really good training. And you like don't have to do any research because, right? Because, you know, when you write something, you like to know a lot about the subject. And I know a lot about this subject. I'll just tell you that. But. <laughs> well, and you said that, you know, you don't really, you, you have to sort of prove yourself. It seems like you've done that a lot in your life because you've done so many different things, all sort of in the creative realm, yeah. but different things. Yes, and really different things, like, you know, sort of performing on stage and designing clothes and writing a book. Those are really different things. And, um, and I have to say, um, also, like, as I'm learning through this book tour, like um, a talk show, like it's a real skill interviewing somebody, and I think you're good at it, but not everyone I've been talking to is so incredibly good at it. But I did that for a long time too, and I developed that skill a little bit, right? But I was gonna say that, you know, um, the remarkable thing to me is that most of my dearest friends are specialists, you know, like Mark Morris, he's like the great white hope of like American dance, right? And, um, and that's what he does. And he makes up these dances and he continues to make up dances and it's not, that's what he does. He's a musician and a, and a, and a, and a dance, a dancer and a choreographer. And, you know, and, and I look at him and I think there's something so incredibly valuable about specializing like that, something that I am really giving up, you know, because I don't want, just, just sort of organically, I can't do it. I don't know what, like, when I closed my company in 1998, that couture thing, which was really like this crazy treadmill that you just can't get off. When it finally stopped, right, I thought to myself, Phew, like, good, you know, that's done. Because you start to bore of something, I do. Um, and that's, for me, I think the greatest sin is to allow any kind of boredom, you know, in one's life. And so, like, now I have this crazy quest of performing on stage, you know, uh, breaking into show business even further because, I mean, I've already begun this kind of show business journey. But now I plan to focus most of my time on that. And it's so not boring, I can't tell you. It's exhausting, it's daunting. Sometimes I think like, can I actually do this? Will this happen, you know? But that's not the point. The point is that I'm actually trying and that I'm, you know, making some headway or else I'd be foolish, but you see what I mean. It's like very exciting. Every single day I wake up and something in my email, there's like some weird offer to appear somewhere and I start getting nervous and I start thinking, well, if we can make the rehearsal, if we can make the show, you know, right? That's exciting. Well, and knowing when you're bored and knowing that it's time to move on to something else is an important skill I as agree. well. Some people just stay too long at the party. And yes, the yes, yes. I don't stay too long at parties. And this is actually part of that something I write about twice or three times about how like sometimes I feel I leave the party too early in order to spare myself this kind of boredom. And you know, my friend Mark, speaking of Mark Morris, like whenever we attend anything together, whether it's the theater or a party or a dinner or anything, he always like, he's always like, what are you still doing here? Because he knows that I leave very early. Like I'm, I'm, the, I'm the one who shows their face and then goes like, slips out the back. Like I never say goodbye to people. And sometimes it's rude, <laughs> but I spare myself boredom, you know, at all costs. 
Did you design the cover of the book? It's really uh, clever. Well, not exactly. I did. I did work with a great designer, though, and we sort of. I feel like it's a collaboration. Yes. For, for folks who haven't seen the book, it's I on the front right. and M on the back. That's Isaac right. Mizrahi, but also it spells I'm. That's right. Or I, I on the front. I'm exactly. I well, assume that was intentional. I was I the last guy in the world to realize there was an arrow in the FedEx logo. So yeah, <laughs> right. But I have to say something. My idea was almost the exact opposite of what he did. Like I said, oh, I just want this big white cover with nothing on it except like a tiny little like just maybe my name or an I or an M or something, right? And he was, and then he like he was like, you mean like this? And he drew this like giant page and like turned. I was like, yep, exactly like that. So <laughs> that's how it happened. And white, too, not to, to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I was really struck in reading the book about the way you describe the color of things. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing is just red. Nothing is just blue. Right. Uh, I mean, and, and every detail, I don't even know how you remember it, first of all. But but things like, I mean, you talked about your little TV, that the case of it was oyster, oyster color. Oyster colored, yeah, yeah exactly. True. Everything has a, a color associated with it, sort of a, an analogy color. It's yes. complicated. Like it, it, it affects me deeply on an emotional level. Color. Is that where all the design starts, is with color? Um, with all the designs, all, everything, every single thing. Like anytime I direct something or anytime I, you know, that's why I think Mark likes to work with me because I listen to music and I, I think it's called like synesthesia. I haven't really studied it too much, but it's like I am deeply affected by color to this point where like if you show me a color, if like I might like start crying or laughing or something for no reason. But like I have sat in shows where he, where he hasn't hired me as a designer and I've been like, oh God, they got the color wrong. I can't watch this. I can hardly watch it, you know? And, and then sometimes like I hear music and I just see these colors and I see this thing happening, like it forms before my eyes. And so like um, colors of things are really important and the memory of color. And then I think about dreaming and there's always colors in my dreams. And I know that like some people only dream in black and white and I feel so terrible for them, you know? Because I gotta tell you, like loving color this much, loving or being as sort of devoted to the color of colors of things at this level that I am and the sensitivity to it I also don't care about it it's like oh really I can't if I start down that path I won't come back so I just have to put it aside for a minute unless it becomes an issue in something and then I can go into it but if I have to so for me um, you know like that's the way I sort of keep it at bay I dress in black and gray mostly in neutrals because I don't want to think about looking down and seeing colors. It's too upsetting or it's too, it takes me away too much. I can't focus if I'm wearing color. That's crazy. It's true. But interesting. <laughs> it's interesting. I have to keep it in a certain, like my house. I have, I was just, I was just um, instant messaging with this friend of mine. I came across this beautiful room that was like, I forgot, I think it's like Chessie Rayner or one of those old great like socialites and it was this beautiful sort of pistachio green, like the whole thing, and I was just mad for it. I had this one yellow, too much, like too much, this yellow kind of ottoman right in the middle of the room. And I was I was thinking to myself, like my houses, you know, my, my bedrooms and my living rooms and stuff, they're all so like colorless. Because if I had that, that kind of color, if I had to live with that kind of color, I would go nuts, you know? I would go nuts unless someone presented it with me and it was absolutely right, which is, there's high, no, no chance of that happening. You well, know? it's interesting too, I was struck in the book by the fact that, uh, and, and you bring it out time and time again in the book, uh, that, that you have some esteem issues that you've had 
ever since you were a kid. Yeah. Confidence in your yes. work, but, right. but esteem issues about, about yourself. My, my question is, as a fashion designer, mm -hmm. you would be constantly surrounded by all these people who are just impossibly oh, kidding me? beautiful. Beautiful and How do thin. you balance that with, with uh, your own sort of uh, issues about weight and so forth? It wasn't easy, I'll tell you, it wasn't easy. Now that I am no longer kind of of the age to really care that much, it's a lot easier. Um, but uh, when you're in it, kind of, you know, it's not easy. And not to mention ballerinas and dancers and, you know, actors, because I also was in those worlds, too. So uh, basically, I was just an outcast everywhere I went, you know. And it has to do with the fact that I was a very heavy little kid. I was 250 pounds at, you know, a, right before I went through puberty. And I was, you know, quite little. And so I was big, really, really big. And, um, and I lost all this weight in high school, right? And since then, I fluctuated back and forth, and I've actually gone like underweight a couple of times. And I loved it, you know? Like, I wanna say that there was a problem, and there probably was, but I was never like sort of more sort of happy or something, you know, which is a crazy bad thing. Um, so, and, and I have to say like, What's happening now is that I am no longer making clothes for dancers or models. I'm actually sort of more the kind of subject of things. And that's a big, big, big change, you know, in my life. That's a very big change in my life. Seeing myself as this kind of like star as opposed to seeing myself as this person behind the scenes who was clever and everybody's best friend, right? Um, and that's, it's exciting. It's also like challenging when you're my age because you know, it's like, well, if I could just stand up completely straight without stooping, it's right, you see what I mean. Remember where you put your car keys? <laughs> well, that too, yes, exactly, right. And, and speaking of, of your fashion career, one of the, the last big things that happened in it, uh, maybe not one of the last big things, but certainly one of the biggest things was when he went to Target. Yeah. Did people, I mean, I remember when Halston went to JCPenney, people became yeah. unglued. Right. Uh, what about when you went to Target? Well, when I went to Target, it was, it seemed like the right time, you know? They had this kind of relationship with Robert Graves and he was making like tea kettles and things. And, and I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, whoa, 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 right? I didn't think it actually, someone thought it and called. And I was like, oh no, I'm not even gonna answer the call. And then as I thought about it, I was like, oh, you know, if I were to do anything again, it would be great to do that. Because, you know, like as much as I really like expensive, fancy clothes, which I don't so much anymore, I really don't. Um, as much as I like them or had liked them, um, I really was just thinking that it would be such a fantastic legacy for my fashion brand to actually just go out there and say, hey, these are some cute clothes. It's not high fashion for the masses. Trust me, it's not. But it is a cute pink corduroy blazer that has a good shape and a t-shirt that is really cute that you wear with it and some cute pants, you know, and shoes and handbags. And that's all it was. And we did it. And it was very, very successful, you know. You had a name for it. Was it Mass Mashing? Oh, um, no, it was Mastige. Mastige. You know, can I tell you something? Yeah. It's not only that. And, like, I remember doing this, this, um, interview with, uh, with a fashion writer recently, or I don't know, not so recently, like six or seven years ago, and I said, you know, the word mastige had not been invented before I made this collection with Target. And she was like, really? 
like she didn't believe me. And I was like, uh, yeah, darling, look it up, okay? I mean, I was furious because I thought, yeah, that is the truth. I wouldn't say that unless it was the truth, you know, so. Well, and the book is all about telling the truth. Uh, it, it occurred to me reading it that I was halfway through and you were still 17. Right. I mean, a lot of it is yes. about your childhood. And, and I will say that that is by design, you know, um, and that's why I did the book with the imprint that I did it with because I really liked the editor who I made the deal. I made the deal because I love the editor, right? Amy Einhorn. And she was the one who said to me, you know, I have a feeling like this book is going to be like very literary and I have a feeling it's going to be mostly about your childhood because of what I've read about you and what I know. And her mother was sort of obsessed with me. She would follow me and stuff. And her mother knew a lot about me. So, and, and, and it was a pre existing deal about making the book, this kind of literary thing about my life, which focused on the kind of story that went from this really crazy kind of um, parochial, you know, sort of really closed up little religious world to this incredibly not closed up and liberal crazy world, right? Um, and a life in which I learned Optimism. I wasn't born optimistic, but I was. I learned it from the circumstance of my life, from the circumstances of my life. I continue to, you know, I'm the one who like doesn't think it's going to work out, and then something works, and it's like, oh, great! Like this is something I'm, I learn about. L life teaches me optimism. Was that from the friction of growing up in this sort of very religious uh, community, but also being gay? Well, it was from growing up in a terrible, terrible circumstance, I think, you know, like, I mean, I don't like to, I don't like to blubber about stuff, but I did not have a happy childhood. I'm sorry, I just didn't, you know. I was really stuck in this little religious world. And then, I don't know how the hell it happened when I was 12, 12 and a half, I auditioned for performing arts high school and I got accepted. And then I went, you know, starting, when I was 12 and a half, the summer I turned, like that fall I turned 13, right? And it was like this crazy culture shock. And it wasn't easy. Like I didn't trust it, I didn't believe it. It took me like a good year to kind of adjust to this crazy freedom and to, to understand that I was sort of turning my back on the terrible world that I was coming from, right? Like, and it was okay to turn my back on that world, you know? like not just okay, necessary. I was teaching myself optimism and teaching myself survival, you know, that first year. Well, and for, for folks who may not know, you grew up in a community in Brooklyn, it was a Syrian. That's right, Jewish Syrian community. Jewish. I didn't even know that was a thing necessarily. Yeah. But it's, uh, it am, sounded like it was pretty tough. I know, it, it, it's tough. And as Philip Johnson once said to me, oh boy, you're Arabic and Jewish. You get to root for whoever's winning. That was what he said to me, which I thought was a very funny thing from him. Okay. Well, it's very strange because for every kind of orthodox measure, there's also the opposite that occurs in that crazy community. You know, it's like this thing in temple, in this temple where the women are secluded from the men, right? First of all, they're visible by the men, which is not supposed to be, right? But then the women in those days used to wear like decolletage and big hair and high heels, and it was like crazy. It was more about fashion for those who wanted it to be like the women and me, basically, than it was about this, you know, this piety, right? And, um, 
And the men, even the rabbis, because the rabbis in school, it was this orthodox yeshiva that was run by Ashkenazi rabbis, right? And they had the big hats and the side locks and the dark suits and, yeah. But the, the rabbis in the shul were quite good looking and sexy. It was the strangest thing. It was really a bait and switch for a little gay boy, you know, like sexy rabbi, like where do you start, you know? But was the hypocrisy that it sounds like you saw in, in that life part of what drove you uh, perhaps even to atheism, which I know you, you in the book you say you're an atheist. Mm -hmm. The hypocrisy, it drove me, but it also, it, it drove me away in so many ways, but it also kind of secretly, I think, formed my, my ability to kind of be like weirdly over the top, rationalize this kind of over the top thing with a kind of basis in reality. You know, I think that's what my work is always about. You know, it's like, yeah, we're going to go to this crazy fun level, but we always come back to the kind of, you know, the, the values, the values, right? The equality, the, the you know, the, 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 prog the progress that I think, well, that I thought the country had made, you know, I'm not so sure anymore, you know, but, but the point is that, like, it's that funny exposure to that hypocrisy that makes me, that makes me, it makes me aware of the politics of how a woman looks at herself and dresses, right, for one thing. It's, 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 it also makes me aware of the politics about the way people in business function because, you know, people will do anything and call it business as usual, you know, and it's disgusting, but that's the world we live in, you know. I hopefully don't think I operate that way. But people do, and you have to be, you have to watch for it. Coming up in a moment, we'll find out more about how Isaac Mizrahi's younger years in his almost cloister community shaped his life, and how the difficult relationship with and the early death of his father set him along his path. It was such a sad thing in my life, and yet it was like the beginning of everything. It was a relief, and it was the beginning of my ability to be who I actually was in the world. I don't know how I would have surmounted that hurdle had he lived. I don't know how I would have been this person that I'm supposed to be, you know, because it was too terrifying while he was alive for me to like really kind of go out there. That and a reading from his book, I Am, a memoir, when talking with authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. You know, one thing I noticed when I was reading the book, it's a small thing, uh, and I may be reading <laughs> too much into it, but I noticed that every time the word God is in there, it's, it's lowercase. Lower no, it's not small at all. I mean, we, as Jewish kids growing up, we were always taught, you know, G dash D. That's right. G dash Capital G dash D. And can I tell you, speaking of Mark Morris, yeah. I had a big fight with him. And I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm making the choice. Every time the word God appears, it's in lowercase. And he's like, oh, you can't. It's not possible. It's always capitalized. And I was like, 
excuse me? And then I discussed it at length with the editor, and she was like, you tell your friend he's wrong. If you want to put those, that word, it's your choice. And it was so funny. It was like he was so insistent that I was wrong. And he's not even Jewish, which is funny. And he was just like, no, God is capitalized. And I was like, no, it's not. God is, who are you? Like, it was a funny fight that we were having for a few days. The other, I wonder if you want, if you noticed this, the other thing in the book is that I never use the word mom. I only use the word mother. And I actually did like a thousand like checks for that because I did want, it's like that Hitchcock thing where it's like she's only mother, you know? And I thought I should just formalize it that way. You know, it's like, because our relationship was a formal relationship, you know? She's the central figure of the book after <coughs> yourself. Yes. And she's still still with us. Yes, she is. She was born in 1927. So how old does that make her? She just had her birthday in September. Oh, well. we'll I'm a journalist. I don't do that. I know. Exactly. Me either. (laughs) Sorry. But she's the central figure. She was a big inspiration in my life. Um, And and it's funny that, you know, that with all of the problems, we still really love each other. You know, we've always loved each other and we still do, you know. And, um, And I will just say this. I mean, this is like... I have to say this because it's true. I think that we still enjoy each other's company and we still are on great terms because of like my efforts, you know? I don't know how much of an effort later in her life she could make because first of all, she's a little less, she's a little feeble at 93 years old. She doesn't remember stuff and yet she's, you know, sharp as a whip when she needs to be. But what I mean by that, what I mean by the fact that it's my effort is that like it always was in our relationship, you know, that's, that's where it was not so balanced. That's where it became like this kind of funny thing between us. It was almost like a friendship, you know, as opposed to this thing where it was unconditional between a mother and a son. It was not unconditional. It was conditioned, you know, hence the word mother, right? And, um, and, but it is, it's, oh, it's always been my responsibility that the relationship kind of tick properly and work properly, you know? Yeah. Didn't work so well with your dad. It didn't work that well with my dad. Um, you know, I think, it's, I think it, it's a pretty common thing with people, at least my age, that with their dads. You know, dads in the 1960s and 70s were, like, encouraged to, to be absent. They were encouraged. They had every kind of, uh, uh, kind of clause in the contract, the father contract, to escape. There were a million escape clause, clauses. And... Um, and my dad had such a hard life, and it wasn't as if he was aware, but he shut down a lot, you know? He shut down a lot after a certain age, and I think that he died really young because of the formative difficulties and the formative, like, brutality of his life, the brutality of it, really, you know? He was beaten as a kid, they were dirt poor. I mean, the way it's described, it was, the way it was described, and. If he was exaggerating, he did a good job in, in, in convincing me that it was really horrible, you know. And, um, and he, he, he would get beaten by his dad, and then he would tell me, you're lucky I don't beat you, you know. And I would look at him and think to myself, like, I'm lucky you don't beat me? Like, you're lucky you don't beat me. I mean, we're all lucky in the situation, that right? It's just, it was a funny thing. Well, he just couldn't really come to terms with the fact that you're gay. Well, I Which never I thought was interesting him. because he's, yeah. he's was in the fashion business. You'd think that... There would be some exposure there. That in those days, you might not remember this, but in those days, things were just not 
out and about. Like even the gayest people in the world were just not suspected, you know? And Well, you and said your mother didn't know. My mother didn't know, but I mean, she asked when I went to my first She didn't know shrink, or she didn't know? I, I think she knew, you know? But I think she may be kind of, I'm pretty good at this too, like I think she kind of um, deluded herself to an extent, right? I'm pretty good at deluding myself when something is very painful to look at. I can tell myself it doesn't exist, you know? Um, but there is this thing about conditioning and time historically, right? When we grew up, if we're the same age, you know, like it just wasn't, I, I, I wrote this in the book, it's like, you know, people called me fag and they called me, you know, girly, whatever they called me, but I don't think even they fathomed what they were saying. Like, I don't think when they said that they envisioned me like sort of in a sexual you know, situation with another man. I don't think they could have even thought of the craziness, but they knew I was effeminate and they knew I was like, you know, uh, 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 they knew I was different, but, and they called me a fag, but it's like, I don't think they even understood what that meant, you know? Um, I'm not sure if I'm making any sense, but I could rely on this denial, on this crazy societal denial of homosexuality. I could rely on that. Like no one would ever think to, you know, to even wonder about it, even though I was a fag. Like they still, it still wasn't, right? Because if I was, then I would be like, you know, like be st I would be stoned to death according to those laws, you know, like really, yeah. And um, so what I have was, to say. Was that the friction with your dad? Um, probably a little bit, yes. There was a friction with him about that, but there was also a friction about like my mother's attention, right? Like my mother and I had this great friendship and I think that he couldn't understand, like he couldn't understand it. And she did nothing to, to, I don't think she did anything to sort of like, to, you know, to calm the waters. Like she kind of worked it a little bit, you know, she worked it. Um, Jewish mothers are good at that. Yes, they are good at working things, exactly. Um, and so, and so I think that added to my difficulties with my dad. Also, you know, like this is just, I'm gonna say this, I am not this kind of, um, this family forward person. You know, you watch all these TV shows, like from sitcoms to crime shows to reality shows, where the big, big, big message is family first. You do, you are part of this family. I don't care what comes in between. I don't care what happens. And I don't really, I never kind of subscribed to that. I just didn't. Because as much as I sort of liked or loved my family, I had to get away from them in order to survive. So, you know, and occasionally my mother, you know, you could see that she's really hurt by, by the lack of closeness that I have with my sisters. And I think my sisters, you know, I think, I think at least one of them really understands why we can't be close because they don't acknowledge formally or something or in any way my sexuality or my choices to be married to a man or any of that, you know? And so I'm not exactly sure how you can live in a world where that, you know, with, with any form of integrity, you know? But at least they're, they're honest with you about it because I would imagine yeah. a lot of people who may have negative opinions about you or your life right. sidle up to you anyway because you're famous. Um, you know, my mother 
will not ever stop like till she goes to her grave. Like her main goal in life is to keep us close. So no matter what she has to say, she will say it, you know? And sometimes it's like, what did you just say? Like, did you really say that? And it's kind of hilarious at other times. Like she's not the greatest truth teller, my mother. She's not the greatest truth teller. I feel like I can't be in a room if there is a lie, you know? And so it's not that easy to be around her now because what in her 60s or in her 50s, I could say, hey, lady, like who are you, who are you trying to tell? This is, look at me, okay, look at me. And now she's like 93, so she just gets away with stuff, but it's not comfortable. It's very uncomfortable, you know? Um, and in some respects, uh, it's, what, it's what kept her, it's, it's her survival mode. You know, because she's so incredibly smart, so I think incredibly well-read. Well, I don't think. I mean, she's read everything, my mother. So she knows, right? But somehow she managed, I think because she was so beloved in the community as like a style icon and as a beautiful woman, you know, she was quite good-looking. And, and she didn't. She, she lost her chance to marry early, as you read in the book, right? And there were a couple of years where I think she saw herself as this kind of outsider. And then she met my dad and she married. And so it was a happy ending, which I think kind of solidified her position there. You know, like if she ever thought of leaving the community, it was far gone when she met my dad. That was it. Right. Like she fulfilled her destiny. You know, her 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 um, conditioning sort of like led her to this conclusion. And that was it. Right. And so there was no kind of slack ever cut for me who was like, I just, I, I literally had to leave to save my own life, right? But there wasn't this kind of like, oh, darling, of course. You know, it was always like, why can't you, why doesn't this, why da da da? You know, it's like, well, because. And so I can't fault her because she's also their mother too. She's my, my sister's mom too, so. Do you think it would have been easier if you had a brother uh, growing up? I mean, for, for your dad to kind of hmm. channel his desire for a son that was more but, you know playing baseball right or except you know my dad like I don't know I don't know if it would have been easier maybe maybe if there was like an older brother maybe you know um, but weirdly like occasionally he would say oh here's a mitt let's play catch and I'd be like really but he wasn't a sports person he really was not into sports he was into music a little bit um, he he was into handiwork, right? Like he loved to fix things. He loved to build things, and um, and 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 he tried to get me into that, right? Because he knew that I had a creative streak in me, right? But he didn't know the right way to do it. He would just say, "Oh, well, you hold this screwdriver," and I just like hold the screwdriver for like hours. Right? He like sort of did everything around the screwdriver. Like, well, what am I doing here? You know. Yet one of the most touching scenes, at least that I thought in the book, was the death of your dad. I like that you think that. I, I mean, it was such a sad thing in my life, and yet it was like the beginning of everything. It was know? a relief in some It sense. was a relief, and it was the beginning of my ability to be who I actually was in the world. You know, I don't know. It's, I don't know how I would have surmounted that hurdle had he lived. I don't know how I would have been this person that I'm supposed to be, you know. Because it was too terrifying while he was alive for me to like really kind of go out there and yeah. 
Well, how do you know who you're supposed to be? Because you're so many things. I you're, know. You're well, in I don't show know. business. I mean, yeah. you've been, and I think maybe, I mean, show business at times almost seem more important to you than the fashion business. Yes, always. And now you're you're performing. You've got I a know. cabaret act that's at, right. at the Carlisle coming that's up soon. Right, that's right. And I have different gigs around the country, but yeah, I mean, yes. Um, how do I know who I am? I mean, you know, that's a good question because of my, even if you look at the early, early years where you're being told that you're wicked because you are an artist, you know, Hasidic Jews don't believe in, they think of it as, they think of art as a false idol. You know that, right? Yeah, you can't create art because someone might worship it or something or it's more beautiful than God or I don't know what the deal is, but you're not supposed to be an artist. So that and this idea of like being homosexual, like basically you're just born wicked, you know? But I knew I wasn't. I knew that I was like somehow a good person. I don't know how I knew that, but I knew it. And um, and so when you say, how do you know who you are? It's a good question. I don't know how I knew who I was then and how I continue to know who I am. I think it has to do with being an art. I think being an artist leads the way because if you don't know the answer to something, if you think about it for a minute as an artist and you just clear away all the stuff that you're supposed to know about it and that you hear about it and all the lies you know about it, you always know the truth. You always do, you know? Um, and that is what motivates me and that's, what, that's why I know who I am because of, because of being able to sort of artistically or something just clear away everything. But do you, you surprise know? yourself a lot? I do. I surprise myself sometimes when I make up stuff. I surprise myself when I write something good or when I do a good show, you know. And by the way, getting back to the self-esteem thing that you brought up in the beginning of the interview, right? Like, I have no self-esteem problems as an artist. Like, I know that I'm a very smart artist and that I am a good, I have a great work ethic and that if you give me the time to do what I'm supposed to do, it's always going to be good. What I can't control is what people think about it, you know? Um, because even something that I think is great, a critic might not agree, that, that they might not like it. And though it doesn't affect me as an artist, except rarely, right? It does affect my ability to go forth in that field, right? If someone says you stink at something, it's not likely someone else is gonna hire you to, to, to do that thing again, you know? Um, so that's why this kind of written discourse about my work makes me a little crazy because it's not going to tell me how to be a better artist because I know I'm a good artist, but it's going to affect my ability to grow out there in the world and get jobs making art. Why did you want to write the book? I mean, you talked about wanting the challenge of being a writer, yeah. but there had to be more to it than that because it's there pure nothing, drudgery. No, can I tell you something? It, yeah. Yes. Well, you're right. And eventually it became this other task. But the original motivation to write the book was to become a writer. And I thought it was going to be this kind of real fun, fun adventure. And I knew there'd be setbacks and there'd be darkness and stuff around it because there always is. But, but it was dark at times, really, really dark. And, um, and I'll tell you, I think one good thing as a fashion designer, the, the, the necessity to keep on making things and making things and making things, you just become, you know, what's the word, word? sort of inured or something. Like you're, old ha you're, old, you're an old hat at this kind of 
Yeah, okay, I'll get to it, right? And that helped. Also, drinking a little helped, you know, like that really did. I, I was never really a drinker, and I started discovering this I, this rosé spritzer thing. Like, you know, it was like, oh, let me have a rosé. Let me just stop everything and have rosé. It's crazy, you know. Before you know it, it was loopy, and I couldn't work anymore, but it really helped me push through a lot, you know. Um, but, but, but once I decided to take the job and I started working on it, it became something entirely different. Is part of it... Um a hope that you reach a certain audience with it. I'm thinking particularly of of young artists or young gay men. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, I think that, yes, I think, like, even though I fool myself to believe that my motivations are selfish, right? Like, I want to do this and write a great book and be a great artist, right? Like, deep, deep down, I think, like, yes, I the telling of the story is so that others can listen to it and maybe get something out of it, right? But my motivation, my actual, the reason I took it was because I got a great advance and I was going to write a book, you know? But in the end, when I think about other kids, you know, who were also kind of treated badly, right? By the way, not because my parents were bad people, but because that's just who I was born to be. I was born to be this like crazy outsider. But I think of other kids who were born on the outside of life, right? And I think of them maybe not being as resilient as I am, right? And I think of them maybe reading the book someday and going, oh, wait a minute. Like, yeah, if I just kind of, if I too can just focus and know that I'm a good person and just soldier on until it gets better, you know? Um, that's a big part of the book. That's a big part of the book. Also, <clears throat> to go back to your question about like why I wrote the book and my kind of glib answer about, well, I wanted a job and I got a great advance and everything, it turned. Once I started writing the book, I was like, oh, no, 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 this is not what we thought, right? First of all, it's not going to take me two years, right? It's going to take me a way longer than two years. And it took like five years, you know? And I kept being late and late and late, but luckily she liked the pages and so good, right? But at the end of it, like telling the story, right, with what I consider a kind of exciting, not so boring, and not such a boring way. I told the story quite not boringly, right? And it's my story. And I really did like sort of rewrite it so many times and really strip it and strip it and strip it of, I think, most of the rancor and most of the anger, right? So it's just this kind of crystal story about my life that is the truth to me. Like, this is the truth to me. And having done that, like, and coming to the other side of it, it's like, I don't care what anybody thinks of me now, you know, because that's my story. And if you don't agree with it, I'm sorry, it's not your story, right? It's my story. I, I feel like it's, that's what makes me feel so great about it. Like, almost like a feeling of flying sometimes, you know, just being so light and happy that this is just now in a document on a computer or actually printed in a form between two covers, you know? Well, maybe that's why the cover is just a big I. Yeah, exactly. And the back is a big M, right? And black and white, positive, yeah. negative, yeah. And no color. No color, <laughs> exactly. Isaac Mizrahi, thanks very much Thank for joining you. us It's a today. pleasure. I love it. Isaac Mizrahi on finally becoming a real writer by his own definition and the longer than predicted time that it took him to get there. Now, to close out our podcast, we'll hear some of the real writing of Isaac Mizrahi as he reads a passage from his book, I Am, a memoir. My father was in critical condition. 
He contracted pneumonia, and we were told his chances of survival were slim. In the 10 minutes I was alone with him, he was barely conscious, with tubes running in and out of different parts of his body and face. He looked exhausted, as if he'd aged 15 years in the hospital. He kept trying to say something, looking up at me, smiling. Finally, with a great deal of effort, he said, you're a good boy. I took his hand, then he said, be a good boy. That's fashion designer, performer, talk show host, and writer Isaac Mizrahi reading from his book, I Am, a memoir from publisher McMillian during our interview with him in November of 2019. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking With Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking With Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and editor of the video version of this program was Paul Shankman. Photography was by Peter Foggy and Ken Calcaterra. Graphics by Jane Ballou and Greg Kopp. The supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support was by Christina Chastain. And HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. The podcast editor was Paul Langdon. And I'm Rod Bylam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up, you get dressed, you prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Houle, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.